Hi, Pastor Rob here from Blessed Hope Chapel and RobCartledgeMinistries.com. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so this morning I wanted to talk about Jesus on the cross. And Jesus wasn't put on the cross, you know, life didn't start and go halfway through and then get to the point where God went, ah, it's all gone wrong, I probably should send my son to die. I want you all to understand that Jesus was going to be on the cross and this was part of God's plan right from the very beginning. Okay, so it, it just shows how intricate God's plan is. Every minute detail is purposeful and planned. As we can see, languages. Now, I'm not sure, I think a lot of you probably already know this, but I'll just quickly cover it. If you look at the map of the Middle East, where Israel is, the country's on one side of Israel to the, to the left. Their language flows as we write. We write at the start, the left-hand side of the page, and we write across to the right. The countries on the opposite side of Israel, they write what we would say is backwards. So look at the languages. They point to Israel. This is, again, part of God's intricate plan. So let's look at some other little interesting things that I've recently found out. The Torah is the Hebrew Bible. Now, Torah in Hebrew is spelt with only four letters or pictographs or ideograms. Um, so the number seven, as we all know, is you know, pretty inexhaustible throughout the entire Bible. You know, the multiples of seven and all the things that seven represents. So as we can see in, in Genesis, in the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, the seventh letter in is the letter T, or the Hebrew letter that represents T, or Tav. Then we count on 49 letters, which is again a multiple of seven. It's the square of seven. Seven times seven is 49. So the 49th letter is an O. 49 more letters gives us an R, and another 49 gives us a H. It spells out Torah. Now note the arrows and which way it's written. They point in, in a certain direction. Let's move on and see if we use the next the next book of the Torah is Exodus. We use exactly the same calculation. The seventh letter is a T, 49th letter an O, then we get an R and a H. Again, it spells Torah, and it's written from, right, from left to right. The arrows I've put on to, to show you, display which way it's going. Now, this is quite strange, because when you get to the next book, which is Leviticus, this 7, 49, 49, 49, didn't work. It wasn't there. But the one after, the book of Numbers, again, we've got 749, 49, 49. It spells out Torah backwards, and it points back the other way. The same in Deuteronomy. 
So the seventh letter is a H-R-O-T. So it spells out Torah again backwards. So we've got two books on one side of Leviticus, spelling Torah and pointing to Leviticus, and the two books the other side, Numbers and Deuteronomy, again, the, the language is flowing back and pointing towards Leviticus. Now, as I know, the, as I've explained, the number seven is pretty inexhaustible in the Bible. You can look through it and through it and through it, and you'll keep finding sevens, patterns throughout the entire Bible with the number seven in it. So let's use the number seven as a pattern and look through Leviticus. The seventh letter in Leviticus is a Y. Seven and seven and seven. Do we know what that spells? Is that not God's name? So we've got the direction of flow in the Torah points to God. Now, let's look at Torah, the actual four letters that are in the Hebrew that make up the word Torah. What they actually mean, each pictograph has a meaning. Torah. Tav or Tau. Vav, Resh, and Hay. This is what it means. Tav is a cross, Vav is a nail, Resh means the highest one, and Hay, behold. On a cross is nailed the highest one to behold. On a cross is nailed the highest one. Do we know what behold means? It means for all to see, to be seen. So on a cross, the highest one, God, will be nailed for all to see. That's what the word Torah means. Okay, so let's go into the Torah. The first word in the Torah, as we know in our Bibles, it says, in the beginning. The first word in the Hebrew Bible is barashit. Let's look at the word barashit. Bet, resh, aleph, shin, yud, tau. Which means... In the beginning. So we know in the beginning is in our Bible, but it's the, the first word, barashit. So let's look at the word barashit. Barashit, the first part of it is bar, which is made up of bet and resh, which means the son of, as in our Bible, the Simon bar Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah. The rest of the words, aleph, Shin, Yud, Tau, which means, as you can see up there on the screen, God the first to destroy by his hand the cross. So let's look at that in a sentence form. Barashit, in the beginning. The Son of God will be destroyed by his own hand on a cross. First word in the Bible telling us what that is. Let's look at the, uh, another word in the sentence that's, that's in the Hebrew Bible. So we know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew Bible it reads just slightly different. It says in the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. Well, let's look at the word created. Created means bara, bet, resh and bar. Bet and resh is bar, the son of, aleph is God. Again, the Son of God. All creation was brought about through the Son of God. We know that because the Bible verses and chapters tell us so. John 1 verse 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Look at Colossians 1, verse 15 to 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now this was an interesting one I found as I bring it to a close. On the last day, or on the day that Jesus was put on trial, as we heard in what Helen and Daniel read, Pilate basically had the chance to set Jesus free. And he did this in a way that he said, I'll give you Jesus or Barabbas. The word Barabbas has a pretty meaningful meaning to it as well. And this is something I've found out myself. Let's look at Barabbas. So, B is Bet, which means house or tent. Aleph means God. Now, Rabbas, as a name, it means shame and rebellion. So the house of God, or God's people, these Pharisees, were shamed when they chose rebellion and they picked Barabbas. So let's just remember that today. Thanks very much for, for listening to me. Thanks, mate. That was brilliant. Great stuff. All right. Well, that got us off to a good start, didn't it? Now, um, who's next? Uh, we're going to have Anthony next. Uh, my message today on Easter aims to uh, try and stimulate our mindsets essentially on what this period symbolises and uh, what are some of the things we should be re reflecting on during this time. Uh, it seems that all things about the Easter period we have become accustomed to has inadvertently become a way of remembering and realising what it truly means but it has also become lost in translation over the years with pagan symbolism and cultural tr traditions. Now, firstly, this, the concept of Easter very much ties into the idea of fertility, resurrection, rebirth, or a new beginning. Now, the concept of Easter eggs really just becomes a comfortable gimmick that we have all become accustomed to over the years. They do have a strong representation of the ideas I mentioned earlier, so rebirth, well, fertility, um, but there is an immense cross-pollination of folk traditions and cultures when it comes to this subject. Most of the ideas of Easter these days have become fables through appropriation, modification, and especially marketing. The commercialism and promotion of chocolate, eggs, over this period is quite astounding, although I do feel that it hasn't completely wiped out the true meaning of Easter, well, at least not yet anyways. So the notion of eggs have for centuries been associated with the Christian festival of Easter, which essentially celebrates the death and resurrection of Christ since the early days of the church. However, Christian customs connected with Easter eggs are to some extent adaptations of ancient pagan practices. With the rise of Christianity in Western Europe, the church adapted many pagan customs and the egg as a symbol of new life 
came to represent the resurrection. Some Christians regarded the egg as a symbol for the stone being rolled away from the tomb. Now, whatever it may be, let's just agree upon the fact that Easter eggs and the other symbol of this period, the Easter bunny, just don't go together. So let's keep in mind that chocolate Easter eggs and the Easter bunny can just be a phase until something even more sinister takes over to destroy that true meaning of of Easter. So let's all try and stay focused on what really matters. And I hope that that it is safe to say to indulge in chocolate from time to time is okay, but just don't become a glutton and overdo it. Let it just be a short phase. Now, um, uh, most things that we do in life do go through phases, don't they? We sometimes put old habits to rest and then new habits come along. We begin new ones. And there comes a time for change and new beginnings, whether we are ready for them or not. Setting new challenges and missions in our life, learning to embrace change, is something that happens to us all. We do struggle sometimes to achieve this. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail. Uh, Our focus gets clouded and motivation drops in times of failure. But through encouragement, we get back up, we try again, and our failures are surprisingly the motivational tools we use to help us succeed the next time around or the next time after that. We eventually pick up on good routines and habits that help us achieve the goals that we strive for. Now, when we look in relation to the legacy of Jesus, his goal set by God, however so terrible and excruciating, his mission was to come into the world as our saviour and give up his life for us and our sinful ways. Now, obviously, Jesus just couldn't step into a room without anyone knowing who he was and say, hey, how's it going on, Jesus? I'm here to die for you. You're welcome. There was a lot more to it than that. From when he was a little boy, he was raised by his parents and disciplined. As he grew, he made the time to go to the synagogue to learn and to question the teachings preached there. This was his time to learn the discipline of God the Father's word. There was a time he went missing and Mary and Joseph were looking desperately for him, worried sick and thinking he was lost. When they found him, he made them realise that he was not anywhere but his father's house where he belonged. This time and this change ultimately led him to grow even more perfect than he already was with the full grasp and understanding of the word and what he needed to accomplish. He then knew it was time to work and start his ministry, gather a few good men to set out what was God's intention and will for all humanity and to fulfill the, proce- uh, to fulfill the prophecy. Jesus, too, could not finish what he had accomplished without putting in the work and efforts assigned to him as his mission from God. He was approached many times by Pharisees, as well as Satan, attempting to trap him and see if he would falter. Yet Jesus succeeded every trick question and every temptation that came his way. At this time of year, all we can do is marvel at the wonders of God, whose unfailing love for us is very deep and perfect, that he took the opportunity to show that love when he sent his son Jesus to die for us and pay the debt for our imperfections and tendencies to fail. The crucifixion of Christ is a symbol for the cornerstone of all human history that unequivocally removes any uncertainties about the love that God has for all of us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 32 to 34, the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter saying, 
If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honour at God's right hand, pleading for us. So whatever missions or challenges have been placed in your heart, however difficult or impossible it may seem now, continue to follow that through the best way that you can. We are not perfect, and we do tend to fail and stumble along the way, but the God you have in your but sorry, the goal that you have in your heart, or the God that you have in your heart, provides, provided it coincides with God's will, will one day become more and more attainable to accomplish. If anything you say to anyone is said and done according to the Spirit and agrees with the Word of God, meaning you are speaking on behalf of God, then you will always be right and could possibly change the way the person thinks for the rest of their lives. Let us always remember Jesus, especially at this time of year, and the example that he led, so that we can feel our purposes in our life, not only now, but consistently. Thank you for listening, everyone. That was great. Thank you, Anthony. Next, we're going to have Nick, if if you're ready. Title that I have might sound a bit peculiar. He descended into hell? Question mark. And this is about Holy Saturday. Right. So we all know that Jesus died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Luke 23. But what happened after he died? We know that his body was laid in Joseph's tomb. But what about the human soul? Reflecting on this question not only sheds light on the Bible's teaching about death and the afterlife, but it is also a great encouragement to us who must face death and seek to do so without fear. So what is death? First of all, what exactly is death? Death is a sad reality that is ever-present in our world today, leaving behind tremendous pain and suffering, and I'm sure everyone can contest to that. Tragically, many people shake a fist at God when faced with the loss of a loved one um, and are left without adequate answers from the church as to death's existence. Unfortunately, an assumption has crept into the church which sees death as a natural part of our existence and as something that we must, that we have to put up with as opposed to being an enemy that came into God's very creation 1 Corinthians 15:26 says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So death is a separation, a dividing of things that ought to be united. Fundamentally, it is separated from God. Paul suggested as much in Ephesians 2, 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. To walk in sin is to be dead, to be enslaved to dark powers, to be separated from God, to be children of his wrath. This type of separation is an estrangement, a hostility, and an alienation from the life and hope of the living God. In this sense, all of us by nature are born dead, and it is the death that Jesus endured in his suffering on the cross. But of course, death is more than just separation from God. 
Death also marks the separation of the soul from the body. God made human beings to be embodied souls and ensouled bodies, and death rips the union asunder. But what happens to these two parts as they're separated? Psalm 16.10 gives us a window into the biblical teaching. You will not abandon my soul to show or let your Holy One see corruption. This passage directs us to the normal account of what happened when a human being died prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The soul was abandoned to show and the body saw corruption or decayed. So this passage directs us to the normal account of what happened when a human being died prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in Acts 2, 29, 31, Peter tells us that David, in writing this psalm, foresaw the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to show, that is, his soul wasn't, nor did his flesh see corruption. Notice that Peter reads the second line as a reference to Jesus' body or flesh. Thus, prior to Jesus, at death, souls normally went to show and the body's flesh decayed. We're all familiar with the latter, but the former is more opaque. A quick Bible study will show us why Peter thinks that David's prophecy in Psalm 16 is such good news. So, to go on, um, the question is, what is Sheol? In the Old Testament, Sheol is the place of the souls of the dead, both the righteous, like Jacob, Genesis 37, 35, Samuel 1, and Samuel 28, and the wicked, Psalm 31. In the New Testament, the Hebrew word of Sheol is translated as Hades, which is actually a Greek word, and the description of Sheol in the Old and New Testament bears some resemblance to the Hades of Greek mythology. Hence my T-shirt. <laughs> it is under the earth. Uh, in numbers, and is like a city with gates and bars, as in Job. It is a land of darkness, a place where sh- shades, the shadowy souls of men dwell. And so I've got a whole list of scriptures. Is there any- anyone's interested in uh, looking into this further? It is a land of forgetfulness where no work is done and no wisdom exists. Most significantly, shows a place where no praises, where there's no praises of God. In the New Testament, the most extended depiction of the afterlife is found in Luke. There we learn that, like the Hades of Greek mythology, the biblical show has two compartments. Hades proper, where the rich man is sent in Luke 16, and Abraham's bosom, where the angels carry Lazarus in Luke 16. Uh, Hades proper is a place of torment where fire causes anguish to the souls imprisoned there. Abraham's bosom, on the other hand, while within shouting distance of Hades, is separated from it by a great chasm in Luke 16 and is like the Greek Elysium, a place of comfort and rest. While much mystery remains, the picture begins to take shape. All dead souls go down to show Hades, but shows divide into two distinct sides, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. The righteous who died prior to Christ dwelt in Sheol with Abraham, and though they were cut off from the land of the living, and therefore from the worship of Yahweh on earth, they were not tormented as the wicked were. So where did uh, Jesus go when he died? What then does this tell us about where Jesus was on the Holy Saturday? Based on Jesus' words to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, some Christians believe that after his death, Jesus' soul went to heaven to be in the presence of the Father. 
But Luke 23 doesn't say that Jesus went in the presence of God. It says that he would be in the presence of the thief when he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And indeed, John, in John 20, explains the meeting of Mary, the first person to see Jesus risen, when the Lord told her, Do not, do not hold on to me, for I have yet ascended to the Father. Uh, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So based on the Old Testament and Luke 16, it, it seems likely that now that the now repentant thief would be at Abraham's side, a place of comfort and rest for the righteous dead, which Jesus here calls paradise. Following his death for sin, then, Jesus journeys to Hades, to the city of death, and rips its gates off the hinges. He liberates Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, John the Baptist, and the rest of the Old Testament faithful, ransoming them from the power of Sheol. And there's a whole lot of scriptures here that I can go into. They had waited there for so long, not having received what was promised, so that their spirits would be now made perfect along with the saints of the new covenant in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. After his resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven and brings the ransomed dead with him, so that now paradise is no longer down near the place of torment, but is up in the third heaven, the highest heaven where God dwells, 2 Corinthians 12. Now, in the church age, when the righteous die... They aren't merely carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The wicked, however, remain in Hades in torment until the final judgment when Hades gives up its dead who dwell there and they are judged according to their deeds. And then death and Hades are thrown into hell, into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. <clears throat> Just concluding now, God's good news for us for this Easter. Uh, what implications does this have for Holy Week then? Christ's journey to Hades demonstrates that he was indeed made like us in every way. Not only did he bear the wrath of God on our behalf, he endured death, the separation of his soul from his body. His body was in Joseph's tomb and his soul was three days in show in the heart of the earth, Matthew 12. But as Psalm 16 makes clear, Jesus is not only like us but different. Jesus was buried like ours but it did not decay. Jesus' soul went to Hades like the Old Testament saints, but wasn't abandoned there. God raised him from the dead, reunited his soul with a new glorified body so that he is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. As this is good news for us, because those in Christ now bypass the land of forgetfulness where no, praises, where no one praises God. And said, when we die, we join with the angelic choir and the saints of old to sing praises to the Lamb who was slain for us and our salvation. The Lord is risen. The Lord has truly risen. And in Greek, in Greek we say, Christos Anesti. Great stuff. Thanks, Nick. Bill, you're up now. All right. Let's all welcome Bill. Thank you. Good morning. Okay. Um, what I have here, I've, uh, I've got a letter from God. It's right here. And uh, I read this out probably a couple of years ago at our um, uh, home church. And I thought it was very appropriate to, ring it, uh, to uh, read it this morning. And uh, this is, uh, well, 
I shouldn't say the real reason, but this is the very reason why God went to the cross, why Jesus went to the cross. Okay, so I'll read it out to, uh, for you. It's made out of scripture and it's uh, in the form of a letter. So here we go. Okay, starts with uh, my child. Uh, you may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. For you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. You are my offspring. I knew you before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You are not a mistake, for all your days are written in my book. I have determined the exact time of your birth and when you would live. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I'm not a distant and angry, but I am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father could ever do, for I am, per I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand. For I am your provider, and I will meet your very needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope, because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to show you great and marvellous things. If you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. Delight in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart, for it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more than you could possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries the lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I will take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your Father, and I love you, even as I love my Son Jesus. For in Jesus my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you, and to tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you do not have to be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I love that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me. And nothing, and nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home, and I will throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I have always been father, and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? 
I am waiting for you. Love your dad, almighty God. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. That was beautiful. Thanks, mate. Next up, we have Andy. Thanks, Rob. Good morning, everyone. My title this morning, Lives Can Change. During the peak of his career as the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Muhammad Ali was flying interstate across America for one of his title fights. Suddenly, the captain announced, ladies and gentlemen, will you fasten your seatbelts? We are about to enter a storm and we'll experience some severe turbulence. For a captain to be that blunt about turbulence, it had to be bad. Immediately, everyone did as they were told. That is, except Muhammad Ali. He was sitting confidently in first class with his belt obviously undone. When the flight attendant who was checking everyone's seatbelt saw Muhammad, she said, Sir, the captain has asked us to fasten our seatbelts. We are about to enter a storm, and it could be dangerous. He replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Quick as a flash, the flight attendant answered him, Superman don't need no plane either. The arrogance of 10, 10 kilometres above the ground in the middle of a dangerous storm to say that you don't need a seatbelt when the reality was that he needed that seatbelt. In fact, he needed the flight attendant, the captain and also the plane. Now I say that to say this. <clears throat> For some of us, the hardest thing to do in the world is admit our weakness and failure. Despite all good sense, we pretend we are superwoman or superman. This is particularly the case when it comes to religion. For some bizarre reason, some of us, and I include myself in this, have at times thought, I'm doing fine on my own. I don't need God. The more I think about it, the more that sounds like Muhammad Ali in the middle of that storm. Now picture this. By about 10 a.m. on a Friday morning, three men found themselves in front of a large crowd, nailed hand and foot to huge wooden crosses like structures. They were naked, bleeding and dying. Each of them was being executed for very serious crimes. One of them for the most serious crime. It was the end of the line for these guys, for there were no more ambitions, no more parties, no more friendships, and in several hours, no more breathing. You would think in a situation like this, all men would be feeling quite unsuper. Amazingly though, one of them refuses to face up to the reality of this situation. Not only is this man experiencing the shame and agony of being crucified in front of an audience, he is about to meet his maker. He is in serious trouble, and instead of coming to his senses though, he turns to the man being crucified in the middle, about five or ten metres away, and yells abuse at him. Luke's bi biography records this for, the <coughs> for us, sorry, and I quote, one of the criminals hung there hurled insults at Jesus, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. From about five or six in the morning, 
Leaders, politicians, soldiers and Pontius Pilate have all been abusing Jesus and making fun of his claim to be the Christ. Now this dying criminal joins in and he joins a long, like a long line of people who that day made the terrible mistake of falsely judging Jesus. His words say it all. This man thinks he has no need of Jesus. Perhaps he thinks he is Superman. Now the most amazing thing about this event is the reaction of the second criminal, the man crucified on the other side of Jesus. He had been doing some serious thinking about his situation. For as soon as he hears these insulting words from the first criminal, he yells to him from 15 or 20 metres away on the other side of Jesus. Don't you fear God, since you are under the same penalty? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Unlike the other criminal, he knows he is about to meet his maker, and he understands time. this is not the time for playing Superman. This is the time to fasten the seatbelt, listen to the flight attendant, obey the captain, and pray that the aircraft makes it through the storm. In other words, this is the time for being honest about his weakness and failures. What a relief it is to be honest about the state of our lives. I mean, for people like you and me, sure, we may not have committed criminal offences, but God isn't only interested in those types of actions. The word sin that Jesus often used has to do with falling short of God's standards, not our society's laws. Who of us can claim not to have broken God's standards? And who of us can claim not to have dark things in our lives for which we are ashamed? Not me, someone once said. Humans are the only species that can blush and the only ones that should. This criminal, however, does more than just feel bad about himself. He doesn't just admit his failures in front of everyone. The other criminal, the crowd, and Jesus, he does something about it, for he says to Jesus, remember me when you come as king. Earlier that morning, the politicians and the religious leaders had accused Jesus of treason for claiming to be God's king, or the Christ. The religious police had shoved the crown of thorns on his head and punched him in the face, sarcastically yelling, hey, king, Pontius Pilate then sealed Jesus' fate by finding him guilty, by, pre by pretending to be king and handing down the death sentence. Everyone refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ or king, but the very thing that everyone rejected, one person that day accepted. The criminal dying next to Jesus <clears throat> begs him, remember me when you come as king. Despite the fact that Jesus is also naked, bleeding and about to die, this criminal can see that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. The criminal must have thought to himself, if Jesus really is God's king, he has the ability to give me a place in God's kingdom. And so he asked, remember me. I love these words because they are so unreligious and unpretentious. He doesn't say, O oh Lord, thou art holy and great, and I am but a worm. 
In thy mercy, forgive my iniquities. His words are simple, sincere. He is merely asking the king for a small place in the kingdom. Jesus' response is typical. Now remember, Jesus has his own problems at this point. He also has nails as thick as your fingers through his hands and feet. He is also naked in front of a large, unsympathetic crowd, and he is about to die. But Jesus responds in true style. For Jesus said to him, I promise you today that you will be with me in paradise. Instant, total, unconditional acceptance. That's what Jesus gave this criminal. No questions asked, no requirements set out, no ifs and buts, nothing. The man had admitted his failure, he had acknowledged Jesus as king, and he had asked the king personally for mercy. That's enough. That's what it means to respond to Jesus. That's how people can find his forgiveness. Those that day who played Superman or Superwoman would have soon found out how unsuper they really were. But the man dying next to Jesus was about to find out that the best and safest way to travel through life is to fasten that seatbelt and listen to the captain. What a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness. In a way, the more inspiring story of the forgiven criminal next to Jesus is a little like a personal note from the parent to you and me saying, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please come home. I often wonder how much the criminal dying next to Jesus... Sorry. understood of what Jesus was doing. I wonder if he realised that he could be forgiven only because Jesus was being punished. I wonder if he knew that forgiveness was free. For him only because it was costly for Jesus that he received mercy. Only because Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment and he was given a clean slate in life. Only because Jesus took on his guilty record, the criminal was about to enjoy paradise, but only because Jesus experienced hell. I'm sorry. Thank you. God. Thank you for that, Andy, and very moving. Okay. So today we're going to look at um, Easter messages in general uh, and uh, what they have to do with, with um, some topics we're going to discuss. One thing I was thinking when uh, we we're all tasked with the job of uh, preparing a message, I was worried that we're all going to come up here with six of the same messages. We haven't, so we've done quite well there, and mine is definitely uh, different to all that, but I suppose that's probably what we're all worried about, so uh, we've solved that. So I think come Easter time, you're almost guaranteed of two things. 
Christian leaders will preach Christian messages and secular leaders will suddenly show all these documentaries on TV uh, hoping to disprove the Easter message. Christian leaders have been preaching Easter messages for over 2,000 years. The core of this message is usually uh, the resurrection, obviously. Kevin Bolling said that as, as a pastor who has preached many Easter sermons, he used a common outline, and I think there's been elements of this outline in everyone's uh, message today. Three, three elements. The first one, the resurrection was prophetically predicted, using Old Testament prophecies, which we've looked, we've looked at the Old Testament a little bit today. The resurrection was credibly confirmed, that's number two. So the life of Jesus is faithfully and reliably recorded in the Gospel Eyewitnesses, uh, and these narratives describe the evidences that Jesus provided of his deity. The miracles, the resurrection, again, Old Testament prophecies confirm Jesus' claims. So that's the second point. And then the third point, the resurrection is eternally experienced and that the history of Christianity is rich with many people experiencing conversion and a changed life. So Kevin's Easter outline, like all Easter sermons, is dependent, though, on this second point, the credible conf confirmation of the eyewitness accounts. If these records are not reliable, then Kevin's entire message falls like a house of cards. The documentaries that air at this time also set out to disprove point number two, that the Bible isn't accurate or credible. In fact, most of our messages today and also during the weeks of this church and a lot of other churches are dependent upon biblical accuracy uh, and reliability. So today, we're going to go through four, only four, good reasons to accept the Bible, or the Gospels in particular, as reliable accounts. This is to refresh us of these reasons, because I feel sometimes they're just out of reach, we forget these things. Um, but I also have something free for you all. That should get you excited. We've got here some little Bible inserts, so they're like a page, page each, and it's just got the four reasons sort of summarised there. And all of this info is, as you'll see on the uh, handout, uh, courtesy of uh, Jay Warner Wallace and Cold Case Christianity. So this is something he put together, but I thought was very relevant for us. So let's get on with it. Reason number one of why the Gospels uh, are reliable and accurate. They were written early. Very quickly, a significant case can be built to establish the early dating of the Gospels. It starts by establishing when the Book of Acts was written. There are several key historical events in Acts that are missing including the death of Paul, Peter and James. And now they all happened around, well, 64, 67 AD, they reckon for Paul, death of James, 61. The absence of these events is reasonable if the book of Acts was written no later than these events, especially when it finishes talking about Paul and doesn't mention that he died. I think that seems pretty obvious. So we have, if we have Acts at AD 60, then what can we say is a book that would have come immediately before that? Well, I think we've got Luke's Gospel, considering he wrote both of them, and that was part one, I suppose. So there's good evidence to support dating Luke in the early 50s. Luke quoted Mark's Gospel more than any other source, but this means that the information in Mark's Gospel is even earlier than Luke's, placing Mark in the late 40s or early 50s. So these early dates for both Luke and Mark make it highly unlikely they could have been, sorry, they could have been written without people that were alive at this time checking these things and saying, well, hang on, no, they didn't happen they would have still been alive. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, very quickly, they are corroborated. So it's tempting to think in this day of video streaming and increased surveillance that the only kind of evidence we can accept would be a live stream video showing the entire event with all the details. 
Of course, we don't need a video of something to prove it, let alone the resurrection. In fact, if someone did have a video of the resurrection, I think we'd probably doubt its authenticity being 2,000 years ago. But what do we have? Well, from archaeology to fulfilled prophecy to the ancient statements of non-Christian authors to the internal evidence of language, proper nouns and cultural details, the New Testament Gospels are corroborated better than any other ancient text. Reason number three, they haven't changed over time. Even if the New Testament Gospels were written early, how can we be sure that they weren't then changed over the years? How do we know that what was written in 50 AD in these Gospels was what the actual manuscript uh, says is what we have today? Bearing in mind, we have manuscripts dating back to about 150-200 AD. So let's look at that, I suppose, gap and what we call the chain of custody. So let's look at John's Gospel. This can be traced from the author John, obviously, to his three personal students, Ignatius, Polycarp and Papias, to their personal student, Arrhenius, to his personal student, Hippolytus. These men in the chain of custody wrote their own letters and documents describing what they had been taught by their predecessors. These letters survive to this day and allow us to evaluate whether or not the New Testament narratives have been changed over the years. The evidence is clear. The foundational claims related to Jesus haven't changed from the first record to the last. And now our final reason, reason number four, the eyewitness accounts are not biased. If the Gospel authors are lying about their claims, as Jay Warner Wallace says, who's a, he's an ex-cop, ex they're only lying for one of the following reasons. Financial greed, sexual or relational lust, or the pursuit of power. Now let's honestly look at these questions. Did the disciples get rich from their writings or their claims? I don't think so. Did they get a bunch of girlfriends as a result of their writings? Again, not that I'm aware of. What about power? Couldn't it be argued that these men became important leaders within their religious community? Potentially. But let's look at, for example, Paul. Paul started off with the authority and respect of his religious community. As a devout Jewish leader, he was charged with hunting down members of the Christian community. Are we really to believe, though, that he would leave this position, jump in with the very group he was happily charged to destroy, only to suffer persecution many year, sorry, for many years in the hope that he might one day return to a position of religious authority? I would suggest this seemed highly unreasonable and unlikely. None of the Gospel authors gained anything from their testimony and instead suffered persecution and death for their claims. The authors lacked motive and bias. So to bring it all together, we now have four good reasons and a free insert for our Bible uh, to believe that the Gospels are accurate. They are written early, they are corroborated, they haven't changed over time and they are not biased. So when it comes to Easter messages, we know that the words from the Bible are true and reflect what actually happened. We have confidence in the Easter message and its accuracy. If it weren't for the passion of Christ, we would still be in our sin. We wouldn't be sure of our salvation and as Paul said, our preaching would be in vain. Thank you. Great stuff. Wow, we've got some great preachers in the church, haven't we? And um, just to let you know, uh, Andy, you have to preach again next week. We want another message. Uh, you're doing the five-minute message next week. And also, I uh, just thought I'd let Luch know he's doing the communion next week. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, not the looch back there. Yeah. Oh, that was great. All right, I'm going to just uh, lead us around the Lord's table. So 
Um, I was just thinking of what um, Andy was saying too about the, um, uh, the, the thief is hanging on the cross and he thought he was Superman. He thought he could, you know, do it alone. He didn't need this Jesus that was right next to him. And uh, as he was saying that, I was just reminded of what I read about Christopher Hitchens, and I'm sure all of you know of, or have heard of Christopher Hitchens. He's, he's a renowned atheist, um, died of cancer, I think, was it last year? Maybe a couple of years. Um, very influential atheist, um, to the point where he was converting people to atheism from Christianity and, and that sort of influence in the world. Wrote a lot of books against the existence of God. And I heard someone say in a thread that um, he, he said, oh, you know, Christopher Hitchens must have turned to God, you know, before he died. And this guy said, no, his wife testified that right up to the point of death, he was still um, creating arguments against the existence of God, right to the point where he died. And what a sad place to be you know, to just deny him all the way to death. And that's what, you know, many people do. But um, as they say, it's, it's, you don't want to be found dead without Jesus. Amen. He died so we can live for eternity, and that's what this day is all about. That's what this church is all about. And um, so let's take our communion if we can, and we're going to pray. We just uh, honour you on this day, Lord Jesus, and uh, as we hold this bread in our hand, Lord. It's a reminder of your body that was broken on that cross for us, Lord. So as we take it now, Lord, help us to really reflect on the depth of agony and despair that you were in at the time of your uh, torture and crucifixion. So we take this now in remembrance of that time. Amen. And Lord, as we take this cup, Lord, we remember your blood that was shed on the cross. Because we know it's on the cross that our sins were, uh, we were redeemed. Lord, our sins were nailed on that cross with you. So Lord, um, but we must also remember that you were resurrected to life. So that we would also be resurrected to life. So Lord, um, help us to continue to follow you and walk in you. And uh, not ever let you go. But to stay focused on you for the rest of our days. So as we take this, it's to remind us and keep us mindful of just what you did on that cross for us. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you search Rob Cartledge in the iTunes store or go to www.robcartledge.com, you'll see a number of different sermon series uncovering religion, truth, judgment, and eternity, apologetics 101, critical doctrine, and end times. Feel free to check them out.